From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland, your host for this episode. Welcome to a new season of Purplish. The state legislature's coming back, and so are we, to talk about all things politics and policy. I'm here with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. Hey, Andy. Hey there. And we've got our colleague, Caitlin Kim, on the line from Washington, D.C., where there's been a lot going on this week. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. It's Thursday morning, February 11th, and by the time you hear this, things most likely have changed. That's definitely true. (laughs) Here in Denver, state lawmakers will be back to work at the Colorado Capitol on Tuesday to really get the legislative session underway. That's right. They've been on a break, or on pause rather, for about a month or so, waiting for things to clear up a little bit with COVID-19, and now they're coming back into the building. And in Washington, D.C., the Senate impeachment trial is going on, and two of Colorado's Democratic members of Congress, Diana DeGette and Joe Neguse, are impeachment managers. So they're part of the team that's trying the case before the Senate. They have prominent roles here. Caitlin, you are there in the building. I'm really curious what has surprised you. I think what has stood out and what has surprised me is how well the impeachment managers have used video from Trump's speeches and probably more importantly and more effectively, video from social media, security cameras, body cams to recreate what happened at the Capitol on January 6th into one coherent, comprehensive and riveting timeline. I mean, the goose and the get talked about how they expected senators to have this visceral reaction to the videos. And, and you're seeing that in the chamber. And it wasn't just senators, obviously, who were in that building that day. You, Caitlin, were at the Capitol on January 6th. Have you learned anything new from these presentations? I don't know if it's new. I think what what really kind of struck me from these presentations is how well they put together sort of the timeline of it. I mean, you know, I was here in my little bubble trying to figure out what was going on. You'd get dispatches and, and emails from other people in different parts of the building, but it was so scattershot. Like you didn't, you were just sort of in the moment and you had no idea. And even days after, you know, videos would come out, but it was still, you know, oh God, this horrible thing happened here. Oh God, this horrible thing happened there. But to see everything sort of laid out, it was shocking and effective. And I think it brought everybody, not just the senators, the staffers, the reporters, everybody back to that day in a, in a way that's still kind of hard to shake. That's kind of what surprised me is I think of, you know, a Senate trial as a really kind of stately, staid thing, mostly just people talking. And, and yet it seems like you've got more of this emotional multimedia experience. But it does seem like, I mean, I'm assuming that the outcome is pretty much predetermined anyway, no matter how emotional it gets in there, right? Yeah. You know, Andy, I think you hit on a really good point. This is unusual in, in, in the fact that senators are both not, not just jurors, they're witnesses to the events of that day. And they were also victims to the events of that day. But on the other hand, everything is preordained. I mean, fine, they're, everybody's reliving that day. But this is why, like, this constitutional vote that happened earlier in the week is so important. It's what Republicans can pull out to justify a no vote. It doesn't matter how shocked they were. It doesn't matter, like, how angry they might have been from that day. They can just say, we did not think this should have been tried here in the Senate. The merits of the case don't matter. What matters is the Senate was not the place where this should have been tried. Arguing on procedure. Exactly. I mean, when, when you're talking about the effectiveness of this presentation— One of the people at the center of that is 
Congressman Joe Neguse. He's a relatively new member of Congress and represents the 2nd Congressional District. You know, he's really been in the spotlight, and it was interesting to me. I was talking to my dad the other day. He's a Republican. He doesn't live in Colorado. And he said the person who impressed him the most throughout this whole thing, and he's been watching it, is Neguse. He's like, who is that guy? Wow, he passed the dad test. <laughs> yeah, he passed the dad test, yes. <laughs> well, you know, your dad is right. Neguse has been front and center on this. You know, he's this is just the start of his second term. And but even in his first term, you know, he was popular and well liked within the caucus. You know, he held a leadership position. He's someone who can work with progressives and moderates. Um, And so he was also one of the leaders debating why it was constitutional for the Senate to impeach a former president. And when it came to presenting the merits of the case, he was the second person to talk to the senators. And I think he was very effective, you know, going from law professorish to empathetic and reminding people why this is important. What you experienced that day. What we experienced that day, what our country experienced that day, is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. You know, I've seen similar buzz about Nagus and his performance just on social media. People commenting that it was kind of a big coming out moment for him but does it you know have any practical effect like do we know what a performance like this can do to shape somebody's career does this go further than just the you know the chamber floor yeah no i think it it can make a difference in a person's career just look at lindsey graham you know and now he's a senator lindsey graham's what (laughs) sorry lindsey graham was an impeachment manager in former president bill clinton's trial Ah. and after that you know he he got a lot of buzz as well and he went on to run for senate so i think there is a way that it can have a boost in a lawmaker's career i was just a tween for clintons and now i've seen two in my my 30s here so uh they're coming fast and furious yes and thank you for making me feel old andy (laughs) what stood out to me is you know we have two members of congress who are managers in this impeachment trial and then in the last impeachment trial Jason Crow was uh, another member of Congress from Colorado. So mm. it, it just feels like for not one of the largest states in the country, we've had a pretty high proportion of members of our delegation having such key roles. Yes. Uh, you know, I think there's definitely some Colorado pride in that um, from from the from the delegation, at least the Democratic members of the delegation. <laughs> you know, Pelosi, as you said, has dug into the Colorado bench for impeachments. I think the only one now is, is Ed Perlmutter, who hasn't. <laughs> Um, but I think it shows, uh, you know, Jason Crow, as you mentioned in the first impeachment trial, Diana DeGette, who who spoke today as well. It shows that they're not only respected, but can also influence and inform not just, you know, their constituents, but their fellow lawmakers. Well, thank you, Lynn. We don't want to take any more of your time because we know you have an impeachment trial to watch. So we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. So this is sort of our legislative preview episode. State lawmakers return to the Capitol on Tuesday for a roughly four-month session. Yeah, the schedule is really kind of wacky this year. Like I mentioned, they technically started in January when they legally are supposed to, but then they went straight into a hiatus for a month, basically, with the hope that it would be kind of safer when they came back. And, and now it's not quite clear how long we will be in session now that they're back. Right. And during that hiatus, lawmakers were given access to the coronavirus vaccine. So 
they could have both doses before session begins. The governor's office said it was to, quote, ensure continuity of state Mm. government. And I don't think it will be a surprise to anyone that addressing the impacts from the pandemic will be a top legislative priority. And that's exactly what I was hearing from Democratic House Majority Leader Denea Escar. And that's going to be really kind of what we're focusing on from the get-go. But there's a lot of legislators who have done a lot of extensive work with their communities and are bringing forth ideas that they either ran on or ideas that they have talked to their communities about to really get accomplished. And some of those were things that they couldn't get done last year because of COVID. And I think that it's just going to be a balance, right? We're going to have to prioritize exactly what pieces of legislation need to move as quickly as possible and and get done and then make sure that we still have space and room for legislators to do the job they were elected to do as well. So you hear there already the big theme of the session coming up, which is like, yeah, how much time do they spend focusing only on COVID versus how much can Democrats start to get back to what they ran on? To start with, though, like, what do you think actually is included in those direct COVID related things that they might be focused on? That in and of itself can be pretty broad from housing assistance and what that looks like and broadband access, addressing mental health issues, other financial relief um, issues with schools. Uh, I know one proposal would set aside $4 million to help families purchase diapers. So I think even under the umbrella of pandemic, that could cover so many different topics. One example of those bills that go maybe beyond the direct effects of the pandemic is that Colorado Democrats are going to try again to introduce a public option. They're going to have a another bill like they did last year that would set the state on a road to have a much more state-run or state-affiliated health insurance option. And I talked to one of the sponsors, Representative Dylan Roberts, and what he basically said was that they couldn't do it last year because of the effects of the pandemic on the healthcare industry, on the legislative session. But they want to try it again this year because, on the other hand, you can make the other argument that in a time of a pandemic could be the exact time that we need to offer more healthcare choices to Coloradans and make sure that people have the security of insurance. You know, Andy, it, it seems like from what I'm hearing, this latest version of public option is going to be pushed out a few years. So I'm wondering if that'll make the d- debate a little less contentious this session. It does seem like that so far. Basically, the new version would say, hey, healthcare industry, you've got a couple years to get costs under control yourself. And if not, then you know the state-run option doesn't come in until 2025. And so far, the, the Colorado Hospital Association has been fairly receptive in how it's talking about that. So um, you know, that may also be that they're they're anticipating more reform pressure from the Biden administration. It does seem like it's kind of a new field for some of these big topics. Yeah, I think uh, along those lines, we're, we're hearing about transportation funding and a, and a fee on gas to to pay for transportation. Mm. I think there's a lot of pent up demand, especially mm. from Democrats on things they want to get done that like you were talking about with public option, didn't happen last session. No guarantee that it would have happened, but definitely was thwarted because of COVID-19. And then we've had an election. So there's a a lot of new lawmakers coming in with their own agendas. Well, you know, if you look at the federal level, there's a lot of pressure among Democrats to act swiftly and decisively now that they have power. And I wonder if that won't also kind of give a boost or, or encouragement to Democrats at the state level to do the same. I think that's right. This will be the third year that Democrats in the Colorado legislature 
have a majority and they have a very wide majority in the House and in the election expanded their majority by one seat in the Senate. So I think it will always be a question of how big Democrats want to go. When you talk to members, they say they want bipartisan support and work with Republicans. Um, And I think that's true. At the same time, they don't need Republicans on every bill. That'll be a dynamic I'll definitely be watching for. All of these policies that we're talking about really will not get accomplished without the legislative leaders behind them guiding them through this these chambers with 100 different members. And in the House of Representatives, we have two new leaders, Speaker of the House Alec Garnett and Minority Leader Hugh McCain. Yeah, and you've been reporting on Garnett for a number of years. He's a Democrat. I'm curious, what do you know about him? What do you think he'll be like in this job? Yeah, well, it's interesting because Garnett is a straight white man. He will be the first straight white Democratic leader of this caucus in about a dozen years. Hmm. There's been women, people of color, the first gay speaker. So, you know, he's well aware he's leading a very diverse caucus with a a lot of different members from different racial and ethnic and religious backgrounds. Hmm. Um, He's in his late 30s. He has two young children. I recently was able to head over to his house in Denver and sit down with him about being in this position. All right. So was it what you would expect? What what was the house like? (laughs) You know what? It was a lot neater and more put together than my house. I can tell you that. (laughs) The house was built in 1895. You know, we've all been doing so much remote work, so it was kind of cool to see what his space is. You're up in the third floor here, huh? Yeah, that's Ashton's room. He has an office carved out of a corner of his two-year-old daughter's bedroom. And I work right there. Let me get you. You actually are in her room. I didn't. I... Yeah. A lot of two-year-olds you would not want to share an office with, <laughs> but <laughs> she's probably an exceptional two-year-old. Well, beyond his toddler, what do his colleagues think of him? Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I've worked with Garnett, the press corps has colleagues, you know, he's someone who's handles pressure really well. He's got a calm demeanor. Mm. And I think for, for the job he's heading into, you have to juggle so many different competing interests, let alone controversies can bubble up. I mean, something can happen each day that you will never anticipate how things are going to go down um, from inside that building or forces outside of that building. So I think we've seen that very viscerally with the pandemic, with the racial justice protests. You know, you never know what is going to happen. And he has to manage 40 people in his caucus who he's not their boss. Um, <laughs> different like a nightmare. <laughs> it kind of does, really. And I've, I've talked to some of his colleagues who said, I really do not envy this job. And one of them was Democratic Representative Carrie Tipper. She said she just has enormous respect for Garnett. And she said in the Democratic caucus, they never considered someone else ascending to this role. It really takes time to process information. That said, he, he is decisive, too. And I think those are those are good qualities to have, both of those qualities in a leader, because oftentimes you're sort of one or the other. But he's got confidence without being arrogant. Well, on the other side of the chamber, there's also new leadership, as we mentioned, Hugh McKean. And he's interesting. He's, he's got a similar reputation for not being really bombastic or confrontational uh, in public. You know, he's not a bomb thrower. 
And he's taking on this role at a really interesting time for the Republican Party. And I think this, and I've heard this from a lot of people too, he has, Hugh McKean has probably one of the most difficult jobs during this legislative session because he's he's leading a very fractured caucus and replacing a minority leader who is still in the caucus. That's right. He's taking over for Patrick Neville, who is generally described as a farther right Republican. People see McKean as kind of a return to, I don't know, I might call him like a, a pre-Trump Republican. He takes a lot more cues uh, from like Reagan ideology than Trump necessarily. And basically, they expect him to spend a lot more time trying to eke out these little compromise victories and uh, bipartisan bills rather than making a lot of grand symbolic stands that are ultimately doomed to fail. Uh, one perspective for me that really helped sum up this difference was from Brian Del Grosso. He was an earlier minority leader. He's a supporter of McKean, and he's similarly uh, from that Loveland area in northern Colorado. My motto that I tried to tell people when I was the leader is we have to govern and in, in the world in which we live, not the world in which we wish it was. And so, uh, quite frankly, the makeup of our state right now, Democrats have the majority of the voters in the state of Colorado. Republicans are not a majority voting bloc. And so for us to go in there and pretend otherwise, it doesn't really work out. And so trying to convince, you know, the second largest voting bloc, I believe now, is the unaffiliated. And so that's a large number of people out there. And so your message has to reach those people that are unaffiliated. And I think the far right, you know, push that was being portrayed by the previous leadership was not being well received by the people in the middle. I think the big question I have is even if Hugh McKean is the leader of this caucus, is there still going to be a far right push? It may not be McKean leading it, but we don't have evidence yet that he'll be able to stop that push or even try to stop that push. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, that's right. And and that's one of the big challenges that he'll face. And, and he said that basically he's not going to be the police telling his members not to introduce certain legislation or telling them not to get up and speak in, in the well and do this and that. But, uh, you know, he said that he does want to keep the caucus on target for things they can accomplish. So I, I have it on mic and I could be proven wrong. So maybe we'll do a episode in a few months where it didn't end up being right. But I think this is going to be a session that's has a, a lot of very in-depth policy discussions. Substantive things are going to get passed. And we also are going to see a lot of politics and bills that we, the term is messaging bills, mm. that you're trying to get a message out there and a narrative, even if you know that bill isn't going to pass. So I think we're just going to see all of the above. And it's going to be a very, very busy session from start to finish. Yeah, it feels like a lot of things are going to be in play, both policy-wise and politics-wise. So we talk about Colorado politics every week on Purplish, and sometimes there's something that makes us step back and think, wait, what? And one of those things was when it became public that Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert claimed 38,000 miles uh, for reimbursement during her campaign. And Andy, you and Lynn and our colleague Kevin tried to figure out how she came up with that figure. That's right. We we dug into it. We listed more than 120 locations where we could publicly find her. And this is important, by the way, because she was able to collect more than $20,000 from the campaign in reimbursement for those mm -hmm. miles. And when we added it all up with some 
math that was, you know, gave her the benefit of the doubt, we came up with at least 30,000 miles of driving. That being said, uh, we've heard plenty of skepticism from election finance experts and others about whether that's really a reasonable amount of mileage to claim. So th- that got me thinking. If you could take a 38,000-mile road trip, uh, I guess, doesn't have to be in Colorado, doesn't even have to be in this country, where would you go? You're going to regret asking this. So I, I mapped this out. <laughs> oh. We're starting in Denver, going down through New Mexico, all the way down the Baja Peninsula to the very tip, back up the West Coast, through Vancouver, through Canada, into Alaska, up to Dead Horse, Alaska, which is the northernmost point you can drive in that state, back down the Canadian Rockies to Glacier, to Banff, drive across Canada, go around the Great Lakes, go up to Nova Scotia, come back down, stop in New Hampshire, see my parents, go down to Miami, (laughs) quick jaunt down there, come up through the south, go back to Denver. Guess how many miles that's probably got you? I'm at a loss. Like 20,000. So that's as far as I could get. We're going to need to do that twice. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like quite a fun road trip. I'll, I'll, I'll hop on a leg of that with you. <laughs> I would really like to do that. But yeah, that drove home how much driving Lauren Boebert apparently did. Wow. That's like the four corners of Canada and Mexico and the U.S. Jeez. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Purplish. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at Benta Berkland. And we want to know more about you, our podcast listeners. If you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know a little bit about yourselves. Or you can email us at news at CPR.org. Tell us whatever you think is relevant. Where do you live? What do you do? Are you a political junkie? Or do you make an exception for us? Are there topics you wish we'd talk about in future episodes? This is Purplish from CPR News. Mm-hmm.